This is Corkscrew Convos, another theme park podcast. My name is DJ. And my name is Chris. And we're here today to talk about theme parks, roller coasters, barbecue, boomerangs, the theater, and everything else under the sun in its time. But first, let's get our disclaimer out of the way. The views, opinions, and information expressed during the following presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent organizations affiliated with those individuals. Chris, this is the first time since I've started watching F1. Now, I'm not a veteran watcher by by any means, but in the past two years, let's say, that I didn't plan to watch a race and I didn't care to, and that was the Miami GP. Wow, and... F1, does this have any relation to A1, that is steak sauce, or is this something entirely different? Something entirely different. A1 is something that we don't even have in our household, because there's no reason to have that with a well-cooked steak. Uh, F1 is something that has really been an integral part of my life recently. Um, But this time, the Miami GP, one of now three United States tracks, one being Austin, Coda, Coda Land, this, yep, the same place. And the other new this year, Las Vegas. Miami was new last year. I just didn't care to watch it. Um, I had some other things I needed to do, and this was the first time that I just, I was okay not watching it. Uh, results might not have been what I wanted anyways. That's okay. The results have been kind of the same for the past, I don't know, year and a half. <laughs> but um, that's, that's all right. I missed it, and that's okay. But these races, there's so few of them that when they happen, aren't they a big deal? There's actually a fair amount of races. Um, There's one just about every other Sunday. Um, Sometimes there's back-to-back Sundays. The season stretches all the way from March till basically the very, it's either the very last week of November or the first week of December. So there's also a good summer break in there. Um, but we had a huge stretch because two weeks ago was supposed to be China, I believe, and they were still on lockdown. So they weren't able to do a GP. So there was a big break in there. That's normally not there. Now we should have a race either every week or every other week up until the summer break, which is I think mid July. And then racing resumes mid August all the way past Thanksgiving. Now, what was so wrong about Miami? Because this was, tell me if I'm wrong, this was at and around Hard Rock Stadium, which is one of my state, my favorite stadiums just by looking at it. So what was wrong with that? Right. So it's a street course, they call it, that they constructed uh, in and around the stadium. Or It's not really in. I shouldn't say in. That's a misnomer. But um, the paddock, the, the, the places where the racers, the team stays and has their meetings. Uh, well, not stays, but has their meetings and that sort of things. That was in the actual stadium, so that was cool to see on the football field um, all of the different teams and all of their cubicle sort of modular home things. Um, but Miami is is an interesting race. Um, it was sort of boring last year, so that was one reason I didn't really care. Everyone was kind of too scared of the track. It was going to be interesting because they thought it was going to rain, and it ended up not raining. Um, so it just wasn't a race that that really, I don't know, spoke to me. I was also kind of torqued a little bit because I, I do want to go to a race someday. And Miami, just because it's in Miami, they can charge literally whatever they want for this race. The same goes for the Las Vegas GP that's going to be new this year. They used to race in Las Vegas years ago, and now they're back. And it's the same story. It's just so ridiculously expensive compared to, oh. like, Austin or even some of the other tracks overseas in Europe. But, I mean, you're talking... At least from the tickets I'm seeing, and you know, dear listener, correct me if I'm wrong. Some of these tickets are five hundred dollars plus, like for a basic ticket. Oh, sounds like a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> yeah, and you know, maybe for some people that's worth it. But Formula One being racing, like in my opinion, the superior experience that for, for that most people could get, that, that everyday people can get, is on TV. You get the onboards of the cars, you get the drones, you get the GoPros, the track. I mean, it, it's incredible. And so if you go to these races, you get to pick one spot and the best spots are more money. And the spot you're at usually has a large LED screen so you can see the whole race outside of the one spot that you're at. Okay. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, DJ. You use the word paddock and I would love to give you a pat on the back for that because in my entire life, I've only ever heard people use the word paddock. Uh, with reference to containing a dinosaur in Jurassic Park. Oh, that's the raptor paddock. Don't go in the raptor paddock. 
and you have used it for something different. You might be the first person ever to use it in a different sense there, too. So I applaud you for that. Well, and I'm here we go, that... Merriam-Webster, number okay. 1A, a usually enclosed area used especially for pasturing or exercising animals, especially in enclosure where racehorses are saddled and paraded before a race. And number two, an area at an automobile race course where racing cars are parked. That is... Okay, I get where that nomenclature and vocabulary comes together because it's sort of like a racehorse, but it's a, a mechanized racehorse of some sort. So I get where that vocabulary transitions to the race world, uh, but I had never encountered it there because I'm still trying to get into this whole race thing. I know you're big on that. I know a lot of other people are fans of these cars going fast, going through the courses, doing all this cool stuff. And maybe I will too someday, but that's just not me yet. Well, that's okay. We'll get you there. Um, it, it's important you use the right jargon, the right nomenclature around F1. It's it's circuit. It's not track. Oh. It's paddock, as we've talked about. Tires, T-Y-R-E-S. You can't spell yeah. it T-I-R-E-S. Mm, fine. <laughs> oh, and by the way, we're matching. Did you notice that? Our same shirt color. Well, my shirt is white as your shirt. Oh, no, okay. It must be the light where you're at. Yeah, I have purple lights on okay. in my room okay. right now. That it sort of makes a, almost a plum color right now. Uh, you have a stark white light shining down on you very dramatically, and then this dark, almost black paint. But you told me before we recorded, it's more of a, a tealish, dark gray color that's more forest-like. And but from here, it looks like a, a layer because it's a black paint. It is a shining white directly down on you light-wise, and uh, it's very impressive. Mm. You know, I can change the light in here. Hold on, hold on. You have colored lights too? So in our new house, we have these remote controls for our bedrooms. They do fan speed, the fan themselves. And there's also a light switch. And so I thought, oh, you know, it's just a light and I don't like this stark white, like you said, that's depressing. However, if you take the light switch and you point it up and you hold down the light button, uh -oh. Hold on. Oh, now it's almost an amber can candlelight sort of That's atmosphere. Right. I like that. Hold it down, and now we'll we'll go back the other way. See, that's Speaking not so bad. Candlelight. Like a, kind of a fusion there. And DJ, you're setting a scene, so I feel like I need to set a scene too. So the listeners won't be able to see this. Maybe they'll get some of this asthma, though. So hold on a moment while I do this. Commence asthma. I have opened the jar of glass. Well, it's a glass candle, but got this lighter here. This is a village candle. It's not Yankee. It's a sort of knockoff. But the scent, DJ, here's the scent. It's balsam fir. Ooh, that's a good one. And it smells so good. It doesn't smell like artificial pine in the sense that it's like a cleaner of some sort. It's, it's strong. It has two wicks in it, so you know it's down... To, to get down to business, you know what I mean? So here I am, I'm going to light it, and I'm going to do the rest of this podcast by candlelight because I have the purple lights going on right now. I got some string lights around there to create the atmosphere. Well, I never really took down the string lights after Christmas, so they just stayed up all year long, and that's just how I am. But for this candle here, I'm going to light it, and it's going to, to set the mood and, and create an atmosphere. So hopefully... That makes for a memorable podcast, this being our 101st. Let's hope so. Here it is, the candle for 101. Ooh, first try. It's lit. Literally. Congratulations. Look at that. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's almost like you're set to review a scary movie or something. Yo, know, I'm glad you said that, DJ, because coincidentally, I watched a horror film for the first time. It's pretty legendary. I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it that are listening. It's called The Shining. Great movie. Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Um, wow. What a fantastic film. Uh, horror, suspense, thriller, mystery to some extent. Yeah, it was almost three hours long, but it didn't feel like it because it was a fast pace, even though... I mean, it was only a couple of characters for the most part, but it was a very fast-paced film in that sense there, too. There were a lot of things where the movie was ahead of me or was trying to get ahead of me, and I appreciated that because if it's a movie where I can see it telegraphed for a while, 
uh, I'll enjoy it. I'll like it, that sort of thing. But it's not going to be one of the best movies I've ever seen. But this was definitely a really good movie. Great film. It had a pretty low body count from, I don't know what I was expecting, but I think only two people died in the film itself. And I'm not going to say who they were in case people haven't seen it like me. But that was a, a good film. And there were points in it where I was like, yeah, I can see how this is a book. And I can see how there's a lot more out there to it than what they're putting into this movie right now. That being said, if I had to guess, I'd say this was probably a very good adaptation of the book. Have you read it yet, DJ? I've not read the book. I see the size of the book and it intimidates me. I don't want anything to do with the book of that size. That's part Maybe of the I horror, should. is the size of the book. Once you yeah. get past that, you're golden. Uh, but I really liked it. Now, I, of course, I had seen Here's Johnny, and I knew when it was coming, I said, okay, they're in the bathroom now, it's about to happen. Uh, but to see it in context was great, because now, DJ, I am that much more dangerous. I have that much more cultural context to be able to pick up on these references, uh, like the July 4th party photo that ended the movie. I had seen that photo before, my ignorant self just thought, oh, it's a really old photo from July 4, 1921. Wow, that was 101 years ago, almost 102. That's cool. And when people posted that on that July 4th saying, oh, it's 100 years ago, I thought, oh, cool. I guess it's just an old photo. I didn't look and see Jack Nicholson in the front. That's him. And boy, the, that movie is really good at just drawing things out and by the time you get to the end of that movie, it's like you don't even want to look at that photo because it, he just keeps you staring at the photo and zooming in and zooming in and zooming in. And I think that in itself is disturbing when you get to stare at a static image in a movie for a long time because then that leaves you with your thoughts right now. Why am I looking at this right now? This is disturbing. Why am I not looking at a moving image? It's almost like, and hear me out, DJ, I don't, I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this one, but... Ferris Bueller's Day Out. Do you know where I'm going with this? The painting. Yes. Where we look at that pointless painting, Sunday in the Park, whatever they call it, and you just stare at that one face until you zoom in and it's just the dots themselves. It's off-putting that you're just staring at it and you're getting closer and closer at it. Why is that? That's not a horror context, but it's disturbing in that sense. It definitely is. I mean, there's a lot of disturbing shots in that movie. I don't want to spoil anything, but... In Ferris Frozen Bueller? In the, no, no, in The Shining. Oh, okay. The, the Frozen in the Maze. Um, well, I had seen that, that, too, when people said, oh, it's cold out, and then they'd post a meme of that. So I had known about that image, of course. You knew it was coming. Um, the visuals of the girls in the hallway, the blood coming out of the elevator, um, all sorts of little Easter eggs and thought provokers in that movie. Um, and I'm sure, you know, knowing they don't have cell phones back then, that's, that's what makes it even more unnerving. The true isolation that it would be, uh, up in a hotel like that in the middle of nowhere. Um, he just wanted to that, write his book, DJ. That's all he wanted. <laughs> knowing that even if you needed help, sorry. Yeah. I, I wonder if there is such isolation in in that situation today like surely they've gotten the roads figured out where if there is going to be something it's more accessible than it was in 1979 or something like that i do think something does come to mind which is the fire spotters that sit up mm. on the top of a mountain they have a cabin with all the windows around it where they can just look for fires and if there's uh, a fire that comes out, they mark it with a dry erase marker on the window to see which way it's going. There's someone on TikTok who does that, and it's very yes, interesting. Yes, I know exactly because, who you're talking about. See, because you didn't know that somebody does that, but they do it, and they go up there for weeks at a time, and sometimes the fire crews go up and visit them, but this, that's another very isolated situation, but with incredible, unbeatable views in 360 degrees. Yeah, the journey to get there, though, is what freaks me out. Like, they're like, okay, I'm now 30-some miles from the nearest anything. They had to drive to get here. <laughs> wow. So I guess there is such isolation out there, too. Though we are so connected 
with digital and internet and all these different things out there, there is opportunity to be alone in the woods sometimes, well, I guess. space, too. That's why space freaks me out. Oh, well, I think there are a lot of things about space that should freak you out, DJ. <laughs> but uh, isolation is up there, too. I mean, we could, we could go on and on about space and isolation and The Shining and all that. But uh, it's very... I'm glad that I saw that movie and I, it took me too long. It was finally back on uh, HBO Max, or Max is about to be called. Um, and so I finally said, you know what? It's right there. I'm going to watch it. Do I have three hours? No, but I'm going to make three hours. <laughs> and here we go. Fantastic. Well, maybe that, that should be the new theme of our uh, podcast. We're not a theme. That's, to- that's totally wrong. What I mean is a new bit. Uh, you watch a horror movie between every recording, or try to, and we'll review. Well, between every recording, that might be a lot. I might have to space it out a little bit. <laughs> Maybe every uh, three. <laughs> take my vegetables with a little bit of sugar here and there to help it go down easier. But um, as we discussed in February, I am trying to open myself up to that experience of cinema that is horror, which I hadn't really given at the time of day uh, for very much. Of course, I had seen some films here and there. I said, wow, that's... Ooh, Annabelle Creation, that's that's a, a strong film mm. right there. Uh, but then I, I hadn't really sat down and said, these are iconic films and horror that have set the genre and made it what it is, to the, made it, what it is today. Uh, but then I have. I mean, I've had some great friends show me the way, and you're one of them, DJ, definitely, to show me what I need to watch and what that means for the legacy of horror that followed it. And I've got plenty more to recommend you, so... You just send me a text. You ask me, what do you think of this? And I'll let you know. Okay. Piranha 3D. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. But Next. that was the long story short. The Shining is a great film. Uh, dear listener, if you want to go see it, I do recommend it. Uh, it's been out there for a while. So if you haven't seen it now, go ahead and make your chance to, to go see that. But DJ, last episode was 100. And that was really special for us. We finally have enough episodes to go into syndication. Uh, When the time comes, we're able to sell our catalog to this media conglomerate and they'll just play our episodes ad nauseum. Um, At least that's what they do in the TV world. But now we have 100 episodes out there. This is our 101st, and it feels good. It feels great. A century of episodes, one might say. And for that 100th, we did something very special Planet Park is what we did. We've done a variety of Planet Parks throughout our discography, throughout our catalog, but this was a special one. We built one from the ground up. We picked a location from the ground up. We chose Myrtle Beach. We had some music-themed uh, rides in there, some uh, uh, various themes from from different things that we thought would be popular. There was even a Bluey Kids area. That was my favorite addition to the uh, Planet Park, and a good episode overall. Yeah, that was a lot of fun because we not only planned a park, but we also talked about what it was to have this podcast Corkscrew Convos here. We had a Corkscrew Convo about having Corkscrew Convos, and I think that's very retrospective, but that just comes with the territory. When you get more than 100 episodes out there, you have this lore and ongoing story plot lines that just sometimes they don't go anywhere. Sometimes they go on and lead to other different things. But it's, it's part of the magic that is podcasting and talking with you every week or almost every week um, and bringing in the dear listener, too, for a good time. Absolutely. And we've had some guests on the show these past 100 episodes. Another guest was Matt from Martin and Vlaminx. That was Wooden Coaster 101. He took us through what it takes to build a coaster, not only in the States and maintain a coaster, but building one in the Down Under uh, in Australia and his journey building Leviathan at SeaWorld, uh, a different type of SeaWorld, but SeaWorld nonetheless sea in World, Australia. two words, yeah. <laughs> That's right. No space. Yeah. Uh, but we also had another great episode with Kinsey, one of our friends here, who we, we talked about the theater in Broadway and theater in the theme park and what that really means. It's called All the Parks a Stage, uh, which, of course, is a play on a Shakespeare quote. Uh, but that was a really fun episode, again, to really nerd out with Kinsey about that sort of thing and hear what she had to say as well. So if you're new to Corkscrew Convos, welcome. Thanks for stopping by. 
we have a hundred other episodes in addition to this one, so go ahead and and take a listen. And if you, we hope you enjoy yourself. If you do enjoy yourself, there's a very free, easy way to help out the show. That is by leaving a written five star review on Apple Podcasts or and a five star review on Spotify as well. But today, dear listener, I, we want to ask you a question, and really, Chris, I'm asking you the question. The dear listener yells in their car, they shout in their car, they, they whisper in their car, they speak in their minds their answer to our questions, but it's something here that will, it will lead us to discovery. My question is about the boomerang, the rebirth of the boomerang. We've asked it before, what does a new boomerang look like? What could a 2.0 boomerang look like? What's the layout? Why are there boomerangs? Why are there so many boomerangs? Why do we keep seeing boomerangs? Why are they building boomerangs? I think the most recent boomerang, maybe, or one of the most recent one, Energylandia, getting a new boomerang in like 2019, 2020. And that design doesn't change. Yeah, I think we cracked the code almost a year ago, DJ, when we talked about it. When people think of a prototypical roller coaster in their heads, more likely than not, it's either going to be a wooden coaster with all that lattice support structure out there, or it's going to be a Vacoma boomerang, a tight pack of inversions and spikes out there. Uh, it's on a ton of different uh, T-shirt designs, even if a park necessarily doesn't have a boomerang. They or might even have if a, they, it's a different coaster, and yeah. then the photo's a boomerang. Yeah, because that's what a roller coaster is. You see it on the pier. You could see it nestled in with other roller coasters. It's a boomerang that's very visually distinctive, and that's it, it shouts roller coaster in that sense. So it makes sense that there are at least 53 boomerangs out there. Uh, but from what I understand, DJ, one of them is getting some special treatment. That's right. Six Flags, Fiesta, Texas. The Boomerang Rebirth, as we're calling it, uh, where the boomerang is located at this park, it's literally the center of the park. Like, if you want to get anywhere in this park, you have to go by this boomerang. So I think that might be why it's so popular. Uh, this boomerang has been there for quite a while, uh, since the 90s, uh, before, I believe before Six Flags Fiesta Texas was a Six Flags Fiesta Texas. Um, but now, today, it's received so much work. The ride's been closed for a while now to get track reverb, structure work done to it. New magnetic brakes were installed on it to get rid of the old friction brakes. Uh, control panel, uh, new electronics, a new comfortable vest restraint along with some new trains. Why do we invest in rides like this? Uh, like, why? And, and when do we say sayonara, as in the case of something like Knott's Berry Farm. There are other parks that have invested in these boomerangs. There's Hershey Park with the vest trains, and then they get the later repaint. They get the tunnel added. Um, they get the new light show package. There's scents, from what I understand, scents oh, of yeah. different fruits of Jolly Ranchers, fog machines, uh, and then a new Nebula's ride uh, right by the middle of the Cobra Roll. It's like called Mixed by Jolly Rancher or something like that. Why? I, I, don't, I don't know. I know. Go ahead. Well, we said it. The boomerang is so visually distinctive. It looks so cool that even though you and me, and maybe the dear listener who's written a ton of coasters, we uh, are a bit of a connoisseur or a sommelier when it comes to riding a roller coaster, but for the park goer who walks and then when they see something they want to ride, they ride it. A boomerang is that thing. It looks so cool. So be able to invest in that roller coaster instead of buying something entirely new. If you can spend money to make that roller coaster a better ride experience, that is going to be the most economical way that you can get a, a very positive guest satisfaction out of an attraction uh, by still being economical as well. Even on a ride that gets what? 400 people an hour through it? Hey, more than that, I think. I don't know. I'm sure it's one train. It has to be one train. But I think that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense well, that they're investing I guess that's boomerang. my point. No one, all the way up to this point, no one's done like a transfer track like a Mr. Freeze just to get that extra train. I'm sure it would be more cost prohibitive. But then you see in China this new Boomerang 2.0. Yeah. Two vertical spikes, and and I get it. I get it. The, the, there's too much land. That sort of thing it would just cost more. Too many moving parts. I'd love to see more of those, but yeah, I think you answered my question. I mean, it's really the iconicness of it, and I guess the fact that 
I'm sure they reached a point where they're like, we neither we either need to refurb this or let it go. And there's probably a struggle with what goes in that spot. Now I'm sure nobody is missing the boomerang at knots. And I feel like the public really loves hang time, for instance. Yeah, that was an example of something that really fit in that area, brought together that whole boardwalk area as well when that opened. Uh, but this is, again, a very cost-effective way to make this ride great for another 20-plus years or however, however long they want to have this boomerang at the park. So I get why they're doing it. It makes sense with a, a lot of what they've done at Six Flags Fiesta Texas, like with uh, Poltergeist, that... Uh, premier launch coaster. They repainted it, got some indoor air-conditioned queue for part of it as well, got some uh, new train designs on it too to, to really bring that experience together, uh, make it more comfortable to wait for it. Uh, it shows that they're really investing in the guest experience. You may not be able to put that on a souvenir cup, but that's okay because even though you don't have the souvenir cup test from that sense, you won't be putting this new boomerang on a souvenir cup. At least I don't think you will. This is still something that people are going to notice when they go to ride this boomerang. And again, maybe not you and me who are the coaster sommeliers. They, they know what a boomerang is and they've ridden a couple of them in our time. But for the guests that goes to visit Six Flags, they're not even called Fiesta Texas. They're just, I'm going to go to Six Flags. And for all they know, this is the only Six Flags out there and it's their Six Flags. When they go to ride this roller coaster, the boomerang, they're going to like it more than they otherwise would have. Well, it says here, it's worth noting, there's only one boomerang that's standing but not operating. That means none are closed permanently, except knots, right? Now, I think that one went to Asia, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I don't know where in Asia, but I, th I thought I remember seeing a photo of it reopened somewhere. I think it might have even been on top of a mall, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but DJ, I put that in because I wanted to see if you would be able to reason out what that one standing but not operating boomerang is. I know it because I looked it up. Don't you look it up, DJ. Is it in this country? It is in this country. It is the only boomerang, according to RCDB, that is standing but not operating. So Wild Adventures? No. Hmm. Is it a Six Flags park? Um... Yes. Frontier City? No. Darien Lake? No. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're going to hear this and you're going to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Are you ready? You're saying it's a Six Flags Park, but I don't think it's any of the major ones. Yeah. I guess it isn't a major one. At least not right now. Hmm. Go ahead. Six Flags, New Orleans. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good See? Quote. Yeah. See? Yeah. And that's wild, though. If that's the only one that's standing when operating. Of course, there's a ton of them that have been moved different places. There's a lot of boomerangs that have been moved like three or four times by the look of when I was looking at RCDB earlier today. Uh, so boomerangs are here to stay. They have left their mark on the industry and... And they are here to stay. <laughs> well, DJ, in addition to the roller coaster that goes up and then comes back, there is something else that has come back as well, or at least is going <laughs> to come back soon. And I hope you appreciated that segue I just did. I just thought yeah. of that now. It wasn't on the outline, yeah. so I want credit for that. <laughs> no, that was good. <laughs> the Disney dining plan is returning to Walt Disney World. Now, what does this mean? I had never really heard of the dining plan. I'd heard things about it in the last couple of years. Like, hey, the dining plan is gone. I was like, what does that mean to me? I've never heard of it before anyway. <laughs> it turns out that the dining plan at Disney and Walt Disney World is for people that stay at their hotels. So that makes sense why I personally have never been in line to experience that product because I've never stayed at their hotels. Have you? No, I've only... Um taking advantage of hotel amenities without staying there. <laughs> oh. Oh, come on. Trader Sam's is that's for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I mean. I mean, yeah. yeah. That's, no. So with this dining plan coming back, it's, uh, it's, I mean, other parks have it as well. Of course, even the SeaWorld parks, I think they have an all-day version 
Uh, the Cedar Fair Parks have it. The Six Flags Parks had it. I'm not sure if they still do. I still think they're trying to figure out what they're offering in that sense. But uh, what the dining plan does, if you think about it, it really builds in this perceived value uh, and encourages the guests to spend more on food than they otherwise would have. Because if, I don't know about you, DJ, if I go to the park and say, okay, I maybe have one good meal here, yep. unless it's Bush Gardens, Williamsburg, and I'm just going to drop a ton of money on different stuff. Yep. <laughs> but the dining plan comes in, and it makes it easier for that guest to commit to spending maybe one and a half to two times the cost of a single meal at the park itself. So, like, for example, with uh, Bush Gardens, they generally price it, from what I understand, at around that range where you spend $45, 50 dollars on all-day dining, you spend more on dining there too, but then you have this easily digestible bargain where if you say, if I dine at least twice in this park, I will get more than my money's worth and I will beat their margin. And that's my goal when I get an all-day dining pass at Bush Gardens. I say... I'm going to make them regret selling that to me because I'm going to use this a ton of places. I'm going to use it at Marco Polo's Marketplace, Trapper Smokehouse, uh, twice, please, twice in the day. <laughs> and I'm going to go to uh, Le Frites in France as well. I'm going to get everything. Uh, and they're going to say, wow, you really use that. When they look at their report analytics and they see usage on the dining plan, they see the scatter plot. And then there's this one outlying point that's just... Wow, they used it five times in a day? I didn't think that was possible. That's me, DJ. That's me with that dining plan. <laughs> I have a, a timer set on my phone to get my money's worth out of that. But, I mean, ultimately with the dining plan, it gives the guests more flexibility and control over their in-park experience and makes them more confident in their spending. It converts me from someone who might have spent money on one good meal in the park to someone who has spent more but yet is still satisfied because they have then still, still gotten something that is valuable to them. Yeah, I mean, it's a, kind of the same logic as the all-day drink plan, right? I mean, you you perceive this value of you're getting so much, and yeah, there are constraints about it, but at the end of the day, you're still spending more than you probably would have normally on one drink. Yeah, it really makes sense to think about it, especially with those souvenir cups. Uh, but Disney, though, they do things a little differently. Because their demand is so high, it makes sense that they don't have this all-day dining product that's out there for anyone to enjoy because everyone would be doing it. I'm coming to Orlando. I'm going to drop money on all-day dining plan if I can. That would be pretty much everybody. All right. What they do differently is they add a barrier to getting the value of the dining plan. That is, you have to stay on property to be able to add this to your stay. It has to be for every night that you stay on site with us, that you get these two quick service meals or one quick service meal and then one uh, dining table service meal and then a snack each day that you're with us. So they, they put that barrier there to add the value into the Disney Hotel value proposition which had taken a couple hits over the last couple of years with them stripping back all these benefits. Uh, but then they're still getting the family to spend money where maybe they otherwise would not have spent so much on food in the parks themselves. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And they don't have as many people, as you've pointed out, uh, that are staying in the hotels. And they're probably your bigger spenders anyway and the ones that would be more equipped to do that. They have all the money to drop on the expensive hotel why not? Yeah, so they entice him to spend just a little bit more. And then you get the photos, and you, oh, let me spend just a little bit more. And that's how they get you. It's beautiful how they put that together. I really do appreciate how they make it so easy to open up your wallet. Because it's all just incremental. Eh, I've already spent this much. Let's live a little, and let's spend this much more. Uh, and there's some beauty in that as well. Uh, but Disney, I mean, like we briefly mentioned, they've discontinued a lot of amenities and perks for staying on site over the last couple of years. Uh, but this is bringing something back, again, something that you're going to have to pay a little bit more for, uh, even though you're already spending uh, with the hotels. But it's building back that value because they lost Disney's Magical Express, which is when you got picked up from the airport and your bags themselves were sent straight to your rooms, just like you. You were sent... Not maybe straight to your rooms, but to the property itself. And uh, almost like a, a cruise ship sort of offering there, too. 
Uh, but then they had free resort parking, which then they said, nah, we're going to charge you for resort parking. But they said, eh, maybe we won't charge you. Maybe we will. Uh, they've rolled it back there too some. It makes sense that they've done that. And with FastPass Plus itself becoming Genie Plus and My Magic Plus, whatever they call it now, with that becoming a paid system, they've also lost that value of staying on site as well. So in the future, when they return FastPass Plus as a sort of a paid option that you can incentivize a hotel stay with, maybe with Genie Plus, but they have a, an advanced booking system for the hotels, that's going to put a little more value back into a hotel stay at Walt Disney World. So I got to admit, DJ, I was sort of burying the lead here because Disney announced another thing recently that was big, especially for people that might be like you and me who might not stay on property, but we might be visiting a Disney park in the next couple of years at least. And that is them getting rid of reservations for their Florida parks at Walt Disney World. Now, this is important to note, DJ, only for single day tickets. If you're going to get an annual pass or a group ticket option there. You're still going to have to have a reservation, but this is something I think that was long overdue because uh, I get why they want it, DJ. They want to know when people are visiting which park, but if you buy a date-specific ticket, it kind of seems like you get that data anyway. Yeah, it kind of does seem like that. And I thought somebody had said, maybe it was maybe it was JPEG, I can't remember, but someone said they don't want to turn away people who just show up. Um, or maybe don't do enough planning ahead. And then they're like, what? I can't get in. I had to make a reservation. We, we flew all the way here from blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I know that exists, DJ, but I'm like, how? You spend so, money, so much money getting here, even if you're coming from another country, so much money getting here to Walt Disney World, to Mickey Mouse, and then you don't plan what it goes into that but i get that them removing this barrier to entry literally uh, is going to be something that is a net positive for them they'll still have the data of how many tickets we've sold for this day for magic kingdom or for that day for epcot and i i think it's something that if they sell date specific tickets i don't know why they still had uh, reservations. I get if you need to move a date that you originally bought for one day, I bet it would be subject to availability. Maybe you'd have to pay a little fee to do that uh, change itself. But it really makes sense of the doing this. It's another thing that Bob Iger can say, yeah, I did this. Uh, I set the ship straight by removing this and changing that, which was going to happen anyway. But he gets the credit for it now, uh, which is just how it works <laughs> out now. Yeah, that was my next question to you, is who put this in motion? Who put this plan in motion to make these changes? Yeah, I mean, with these reservations here, and, and then with what is changing, which is essentially nothing on the park side, you're still getting to control how many people are coming into the park. And I say that without saying that you are limiting the actual capacity of people inside the park, because that's not true. I've been to Magic Kingdom that February in 2022, and there was a 45-minute wait for the people mover. It's still going to be a busy day um, pretty much any time you visit these parks from the way that they have designed this revenue management system. But with these reservations and now with these dated single-day tickets and, of course, dynamic pricing, they are able to push demand to all of their parks. Where previously, back in the day, you would buy, I mean, almost a, dec a decade ago, they did that dynamic pricing where they priced for a Magic Kingdom ticket and then a every other park ticket or maybe an Animal Kingdom tier ticket was a little cheaper, a little more incentive for a guest to visit there instead of Magic Kingdom, which already has this all these demand drivers like the castle and, and all these iconic rides as well. So by still having these dated tickets here, they're setting a limit on the number of tickets that they have available for a certain day, which can be whatever they want. If they say, wow, we're selling an awful lot for Epcot this day with food and wine happening right now, but Hollywood Studios is looking a little soft compared to uh, the numbers that they were doing this time last year. Why don't we say Epcot's reservations are now... I mean, Epcot's single-day tickets are now sold out. And uh, in a couple weeks, we can revisit that when we're still months out. Um, 
I think that there's a lot of control that they can have over pushing these demands to their different parks or better yet, enticing people to spend on park hopper tickets uh, where you got to visit the home park first before you go to the second park. And that way they get you going to multiple places, uh, double the chance of you being able to be enticed to buy all these cool different souvenirs at different parks as well, different food. Uh, so I get what they're doing there too. And, and in this sense, they do it better than anybody in the sense of them uh, being able to set their ticket for how they want people to spend money. They have that goodwill and that spending ability to create their own ecosystem, as we well know, uh, that they can charge what they want for it. And they certainly do. That's right. They are in full control. <laughs> There's no lie there. Yeah. So moving forward, when these reservations are discontinued in this sense in January of 2024, the biggest variable moving forward is annual pass holders that... Maybe they live local and they can show up whenever. Well, for them, they're still going to need reservations to get their visits. But uh, it's really, it makes sense. I'm not an annual pass holder to Disney. I don't know if I ever would be living so far away. Um, but I, I get it because they want to have a little more control over who visits when. And if they are close to uh, a really busy day at Hollywood Studios on this coming Saturday where they know there's a ton of people visiting with single-day tickets. They know, well, we're already going to have this much here this day. Our projection is for this much, and we're this uh, amount confident that we're going to reach that. I don't know if we need any more uh, annual pass holders to visit, so I guess we have sold out of our reservations for that day for the annual pass. And I know that there's I'm vastly simplifying what the process is. I know they have these big equations and models and AI that helps make this look very sophisticated, and I am vastly oversimplifying that, but this is the sentiment behind what they're doing. Hmm. It makes sense. I don't know too much about Disney still. Like A lot of my friends ask me questions about Disney, and it's things like this where I'm like, yeah, I think there's a reservation system. I, I think annual pass holders are entitled to X, Y, and Z. And it's things like this that I just don't keep up with it. So then I never know. Are you telling me, DJ, that you are not a Disney adult? <laughs> I have some wonderful friends who are adults and have an affinity for Disney. But I am one who I greatly enjoy my time. If I could go once a year, maybe twice a year, I would do it. Um, but that's kind of where it stops. For me, personally. In terms of being a Disney adult DJ, I'm not sure that I would wear that. I don't think that's my label. I like theme parks. I like big, cool rides. I like a lot of Disney movies. But I don't visit Disney because it's Disney. So I wouldn't say that I'm a Disney adult. There's nothing wrong with being a Disney adult. There's a lot of people that grew up going to these parks every year, and that's a tradition for them. And now as an adult, they visit and enjoy all these beverages and still take the photos with Mickey. And that's great. That's awesome. I love seeing those photos of my friends going visiting Disney. Uh, but I, I first visited Disney when I was in high school, so I don't necessarily have those memories built in for the Disney park experience. I'm the same way. I didn't go until I was 20 years old. So, yeah. I <laughs> and mean, I didn't grow up watching the movies or anything like that either. So it just less and less reason. I mean, you know, Star Wars is there now. That's cool. But still, I wasn't, I don't know. It just wasn't as hyped as I was for Wizarding World. Now, I might be a universal adult. I could go there all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, of course, uh, the dear listener probably knows too, because I've mentioned to it, alluded to it here and there. I have, of course, worked at Disneyland for uh, a while before, uh, before the pandemic. And so I definitely have done Disney. I know Disney, um, but it's like in traditions, which is the company orientation that you take before you get any... Uh, line of business specific orientation or training. This is your introduction to the Walt Disney Company and what you're going to do here in the parks. Uh, it's very high level emotion driven stuff. And 
I, I'd watch stuff and read stuff and heard from other people about what traditions is going to be. And of course, a lot of people get emotional because it's tapping into their Disney park experience and traditions that they have. That's what I was going to say, a lot of tears. <laughs> For me, that wasn't there. Of course, I appreciated what they were trying to do. I honored that I was being a part of this legacy and now I was going to create the magic and yes that's fun that's very cool and Mickey did come in and, and congratulate all of us at the end which was nice but uh, I, I didn't really get emotional at it but it gets perfectly fine people who do I can really appreciate where they're coming from uh, that's just not an experience that they have that I have uh, growing up yeah and and but we can try to relate or we can try and have fun too but it's always more fun for me to go with friends to Disney nowadays. It is. And, of course, I I haven't been to Disney in a little over a year now. But I, I definitely really enjoy my time when I go because I'm able to really – I mean, I'm a nerd about Disney, DJ. I, I might have been understating this for a while. I am a Disney nerd when it comes to learning about the histories of these parks and these attractions and what goes into them. Um, so <laughs> I definitely enjoy my time when I do go for the most part. I was going to close us out with a little, a little bit of darkness, uh, a little bit of talk on Dark Coaster. Uh, we've got an official word that it is opening at Busch Gardens Williamsburg in just a few weeks. This is the gothic jet ski coaster, as I describe it, that is now occupying the former Dark Castle show building, or should I say ride building, to be a little more accurate. Yeah, and it's not necessarily jet skis. From the look of it, they are... Uh, snow things. I mean, if we were, if they were in The Shining, they'd be uh, snow cats, whatever they called them. Uh, but uh, like a, something that you straddle. But from the look of it, from looking at the trains, which of course they have shown the photos of the trains now, they're very slick. They look great. Uh, they have those ice tracks on them, so I wouldn't quite call them jet skis. It is though a straddle coaster, from what they're calling it. I think they coined that term, but I'm not sure. What the, straddle, what the straddling element entails. Because, of course, there's Tron. That is, I guess I would also call a straddle coaster, where you do have to step over this horse chair. What do you call it? Saddle. Saddle. <laughs> Brain fart. Uh, a saddle uh, that they have in Tron. Horse chair. A horse chair, yes. That, that could be our <laughs> T-shirt, new T-shirt. It's a It's a painting of a saddle and just says horse chair. Corkscrew yeah. combos on the back. <laughs> I mean, it's what it is. It's a simplistic way to, to say that. But with the trains at Busch Gardens Williamsburg, with Dark Coaster, they look like you're still sitting down and then maybe your legs go around something in that sense and then the lap bar comes down i think i'm really gonna have to see it in person to really know what the seat and restraint and train experience is like uh, but i'm very intrigued because i am unfamiliar i haven't seen what the other SeaWorld parks have gotten maybe on this stature i think in san antonio i think that's different at this point I don't know. Well, I'm going to have to to learn and see what this yeah, ride it's experience is. It's the same is. as San Antonio. It's the same okay. ride vehicle. It's just purple. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it, DJ, because we've seen the track. They've shown photos of the show building in the construction process. I mean, I get served a ton of ads for Dark Coaster, and I'm like, why are you wasting the money to serve me the ads? I'm already hook, line, and sinker here. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that's how it is. But um, what really intrigues me is what's going to happen around the coaster itself. Because we've seen the photos of the interior when they were building it. We know there's going to be these twists and turns, a launch, I think, and then uh, other elements around the castle. But what's going to happen? Is it going to be photorealistic to the concept art that we've seen? That would be really cool because at one point we'd be going through a hell mouth of Ludwig, which that would be really be something if they do have that in there. You know, DJ, I'm going to actually call my shot right now. <clears throat> Go ahead. If they do have a hell mouth in Dark Coaster, that is, of course, a, a theatrical term where there is this giant mouth that you either go through uh, to signify something on a lot of old roller coasters like I think... The cyclone at Astroworld, they had a, a famous mouth in that sense where you you drop and you go through it. Um, if they have this hell mouth on Dark Coaster, it's going to be towards the end of the first lap. 
when you're on the coaster. So you're going to be running through the icy areas. You're going to see the castle being taken over, whatever you see. But then you go through and you can't avoid it. And Ludwig gets you. And then you go around a second <laughs> lap. And this is when you are under his command in that sense. And you're getting out, trying to get out from your life. Go out beyond the castle walls. My son has no power there. Whatever they say. I, I do hope they <laughs> reference the, the mother from Curse of Dark Castle because she had some great one-liners. Ludwig, my son, you were never sane to begin with. Stuff like that. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to call my shot now. And if I'm right, I want a parade because I think that okay. would be a really cool thing to call out with no prior yeah. knowledge on the story itself. We'll give you a jet ski parade, and you can enjoy that. Okay, deal. I like that. So, DJ, to close <laughs> out, I want to tantalize you. You've talked a little bit about darkness, both with The Shining and with Dark Coaster. We've talked a little bit about the light with Disney, the, the majesty of magic, and all that fun stuff. But now I want to go for your stomach. Okay. And that is with the menu of Bush Gardens, Williamsburg, uh, and their Food and Wine Festival. Here this we go. Is, I clicked the link. Yeah. This is something that you experienced when you visited the park for the first time in 2018. <laughs> the one day that you were there, I think. Was it only one day? Uh, it was supposed to be two days at King's Dominion, one at Williamsburg, and we flip-flopped after visiting King's Dominion and doing everything in a day. <laughs> okay, so you got two days at Williamsburg. It was during Food and Wine, and I think that had quite an effect on you because that's a really fun event. All these different foods, different drinks, frozen rosé, all that. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So what's different about Food and Wine this year is that they're celebrating 10 years of the event. Wow, it's been around for 10 years as well. I remember when they first announced, I was like, food and wine? I don't care, because I was just like high schooler, and I didn't care about stuff like that. But now I do. <laughs> uh, so and I, they still have those awesome hurricane glasses that I have. Mm -hmm. See, I mean, they get you with the merchandising, even if it's tied into food and beverage. That's how they get you. Uh, but oh. with this, this 10-year anniversary of food and wine at Busch Gardens Williamsburg, they are bringing back a weekly rotating menu for a lot of dishes that have since been replaced. And the sad part is, uh, I haven't been to food and wine in a couple years. I didn't know a lot, a lot of this stuff wasn't served anymore. So to see it come back on a, a limited basis, it does do my heart good a little bit. So for example, uh, we are about to be the weekend of May 11th through 14th. So they'll be bringing back uh, ooh, some oh, souvlaki tzatziki. I didn't know they took that out. <laughs> so it's stuff like that where me, who wasn't following food and wine that closely because I hadn't been able to go to the event for several years, to see them bring this back in a limited capacity for these one-off dishes that had their time in the sun and now they've been replaced by stuff that's even better, it's really fun and unique because they're sort of building on the lore of Food and Wine Festival uh, in a sense that I didn't know that they could do that, but here they are doing it now. They have a Virginia-like menu, <clears throat> and one of the options is called an oyster shooter. It's an oyster with cocktail sauce and a shot of moonshine. That is awful. Wow. I, uh, that's not something that I have done before. <laughs> so, I mean, it's Virginia culture, I guess, but me being very familiar with Virginia culture, I'd never heard of that, but that's very cool. <laughs> oh, they do have baklava coming back. I love baklava. In the Virginia booth? No, in the, oh. in the rotating <laughs> okay. yeah, in Greece. Yeah, yeah, so let me just run through this menu here, pick out a couple ones that I am going to have to try when I try out Food & Wine this year. I don't know yet when it's going to be, but I think that this is the year that I go back to Food & Wine at Busch Gardens Williamsburg and make a triumphant return, spend a ton of money buying everything uh, and really making a go of it. So here we go. We got the Virginia booth. For me, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Virginia in my life, <laughs> but even then they have some pretty unique things like she crab soup. Okay. Maybe. I like that. Bacon yeah, that and cheddar hush like. puppies. Yeah. I'd probably get those too. Yep. That'd be good. All right. Australia is next. Okay. They got lamb chop, uh, roasted lamb lollipop with cilantro mint sauce. Okay. I'd probably get that. I'd try that out. Snag on the Barbie. A banger sausage and Vegemite caramelized onions. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, Vegemite, that's a very intense flavor, but I might try that. 
Hawaii is next. Oh, here we go. Mm. They get the Hawaiian mac and cheese. That has probably got to be one of the best-selling dishes at this festival. Uh, the Kahlua pork slider, too. Oh, here we go. <laughs> they all sound so good. This oh, is Spam on sushi rice is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got Mexico. They have different types of tacos. It's good. Ooh, horchata. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be spending a lot of money, more than I should, but that's, here we go. That's my wife's favorite drink is horchata. <laughs> In the French Quarter, oh, we're bringing a little bit of Mardi Gras back. They're going to have some jambalaya, uh, muffaletta, and, of course, the beignets. That is... I might say that has been my favorite uh, food and wine dish in the past because I feel like they've almost always had beignets since I visited the event. That was the star of the show, the beignets themselves. And, of course, they did bring those out for the Mardi Gras celebration that they rolled out a couple years ago as well. But uh, to have that still there, that's great. Oh, we got Brazil. Here we go. Churrasco, the grilled beef and chimichurri sauce. I don't know what it is about chimichurri sauce and a SeaWorld Park, but it is just something that goes right. I think I've had this before at Food & Wine, but then even at SeaWorld in Orlando, when I would go to that restaurant that's by Infinity Falls, and I had the dining plan, and I was getting everything, I said, you know what, I have the dining plan, give me the steak. And it had this chimichurri on it that was so delicious. So I'm looking forward to trying that again, definitely. In Jamaica, they'll be bringing back the jerk chicken slider. That's probably going to be uh, something that is uh, very good for me. I'd also like to try out the Jamaican patty. Uh, let's see. In some drink stands, different options there. Oh, Italy. A giant Ooh, meatball. Giant meatball. <laughs> okay, with shaved Asiago cheese. Hard to go wrong with that. Uh, I wouldn't even look at the other options, even though they look good, too. Oh, Japan. Here we go. Impossible, impossible plant-based meat with Asian slaw and a steamed bun. You know, if you know me, DJ, you know that I like a steamed bun, and to have that in a, a plant-based option, that's just combining two things, two great things into one. Uh, that's going to have to be another must-try for me. Also, the matcha ice cream, the bubble tea. Big fan of both of those. Now, I've had bubble tea before, um, where it's like this tapioca root sort of thing. I don't like to chew my drinks, DJ. Uh-huh. Yep. It wasn't for me. Now, this, is, this, uh, one, this particular yeah. one has fruit boba, and that's something entirely different. That is a, not a drink, it's an right. experience, <laughs> if you get what I'm saying, where yeah, you get they, the they, beverage burst in and your they mouth. pop. Yeah, they burst in your mouth, like you said. And they just have such intense flavor that I could get behind that. Even though I'm not necessarily a tea drinker, that is something I definitely might try. Looks like an absolute great event. Just like when we when we attended, there was so much to eat, so much to, to enjoy. I mean, what an absolute fabulous festival they put on. Would love to go back. Two days still wasn't enough. Yeah. I mean, it's a great time of food and wine. I, I don't know about you, DJ, but I had dinner before we recorded, and now I'm looking at the freezer and saying, what can I put in the Easy Bake Oven? Because now I'm hungry again. <laughs> uh, that is the danger of looking at the menu for Food and Wine Festival. Even looking at the map overlay of the park, I'm remembering how um, sort of, well, how would you say it? Like deceiving, I suppose, the map is. It's such a huge park and it just looks so small on this little map yeah even though the acreage might be pretty tightly packed with pathways and rides they're able to really build little nodes and avenues that really make it an experience to walk through now that's a separate story a separate discussion for the design of bush gardens williamsburg Uh, but with that park It's funny, when you visit it and there aren't a lot of leaves on the trees, you can see just how close you are to another section of the park. Um, When you're, like, for example, in Rheinfeld and looking towards France or even Scotland, you're not that far away. But it feels so much more isolated when you get that greenery in there and you notice how much I have to walk through to get to that other section of the park. It's really well done. Exactly, exactly. Well, it looks like an awesome event. Like I said, we'd love to go back. Let's plan a visit sometime soon. 
Yeah, DJ, this was a lot of fun to catch up with you here today. Uh, it was great to talk about things that were new to me, things that were very familiar to you, and again, things that were returning again, not only a boomerang, but uh, a lot of different options for Disney park goers, where they to want to visit the parks uh, in 2024 and beyond. So uh, if you do want to have a corkscrew conversation with us, dear listener, there's a lot of easy ways for you to do so. That's right. We're on all the major social media platforms at Corkscrew Convos or some sort of other variation and on email corkscrewconvos at gmail.com. Maybe more of a long form question. Maybe you want to remain anonymous. Great way to do it. You can always DM us as well on any of the social platforms. Always a great way to talk to us and get a hold of us. We're happy to take your question. We're happy to say it here on the air. But until next time, my name is Chris. And my name is DJ. And this has been another Corkscrew Convo. Thanks for listening.